Hey everyone, welcome to the I Know Lonely podcast from Only 7 Seconds. I'm your host, Luke Wall. This month, I get to interview Vic Chopra as he shares his extremely powerful story. Vic's story includes his tenuous relationship with his dad, his experience with substance abuse, and incarceration. Vic now has a passion for filmmaking, addressing prison reform, and supporting those re-entering the world after incarceration. I know for me personally, Vic's story helped me to better understand addiction, substance abuse, and incarceration. I hope that you gain a similar perspective. Before we get started, this episode includes conversation around LGBTQ, depression, anxiety, drug use, abuse, suicidal ideation, and incarceration. This podcast may not be appropriate for some listeners. If you need support or access to resources, please check out our website at www.only7seconds.com. Without further ado, here's Vic. Welcome, Vic. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Luke. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, likewise. I, uh, I've been looking forward to this ever since we filmed last year together. So. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, I was really excited when I heard you guys were starting a podcast and you know giving the participants from last year's set of videos an opportunity to just come in and have like an open conversation and just sort of expand on our stories a little bit more. I thought that was that was really really dope. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, no, likewise, and yeah, thank you for joining us. Um, to get started, just tell tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Like, um, let's kind of start from the beginning, like. Where, where were you born? Where were you raised? Um, tell me a little bit about your childhood and who you are. Okay. Let's, let's uh, dive let's, right let's in. Let's dive right in. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, my name is Vic Chopra. Vic is short for Vikram. Uh, that is a South Asian or East Indian name. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, my parents came from India. They immigrated in the early 70s. Okay. And then I was born in Seattle in 1981. So we're just taking it right back from birth. We'll just, we'll just start. <laughs> we'll just start from there. <laughs> um, so I grew up in the Renton, Washington area. Okay, uh, that's where yeah I spent all of my childhood. That's where my family still still lives. My mom, my brother, and my sister and I currently we all live together. Okay, uh, at, at my childhood home in Renton, my father passed away a couple of years ago. But uh, yeah, I grew up down in that area. Went to school. Where, where in Renton? Where is Renton relative to like? Seattle. So Renton is about 20 minutes south of Seattle. Okay. Like, yeah, just 20 Perfect. minutes southeast. It's like, are you familiar with Bellevue, Washington? Yep. It's yeah. just south of Bellevue. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. I think really bougie people like to call Renton South Bellevue, which I'm like, you just, <laughs> that's not going to happen. That's not a thing. <laughs> at all. <laughs> well, I mean, with, with housing prices the way they are, I mean, maybe now, yeah. nowadays it's crazy. Uh, but yeah, I, I went to school down there. Um, growing up, I was... I consider myself a pretty good, well-behaved kid. I was an honor student, like the, pretty much this like stereotypical Indian overachiever, you know, like I won the school spelling bee in the fourth grade, okay. you know, when yeah. I, when I beat out fifth and sixth graders, <laughs> I was president of my elementary school in sixth grade, wow. um, <clears throat> got straight A's all the way up until high school In high school. I, you know, was in all the extracurriculars. I was an honor student, honor society, uh, ASB senior class rep senior year. I was president of the multicultural club. I was a natural helper. Like that was very wow. much like my thing was just being very, very involved. Yeah. Involved in school and, and in academics and everything. Okay. 
And in family life, uh, as a child, you had you said you had two siblings. Yeah, so I was the youngest, okay. or I am the youngest of two siblings. I have an older brother who's four years older than me and an older sister who's 10 years older than me. Um, so our childhood, like, I don't know if maybe I was overcompensating for things at home with the just, you know, kind of diving into, like, my studies and mm-hmm. kind of making that uh, – like the primary focus. I mean, I, I had a lot of friends as well and, and love to hang out, but you know, I was, I was really focused on, on being like the best in school. But, uh, my parents had a really contentious, uh, marriage. My father was just very abusive, very verbally abusive, very emotionally abusive to my mom and to all of us kids. Like they would have like at least two to three big blowout fights every year where my dad would scream and yell. And it was crazy. He wouldn't, just fight with my mom he would like fight with the kids too like he would like turn against all of us and then and then there would be like two to three weeks where he didn't speak to the whole family so I can remember being very afraid of my father as a Mm -hmm. child I walked on eggshells around him I was always I I my stomach was always in knots around him his energy was just very negative and very like it's like a dark cloud that just kind of hung over the house and um yeah, it was very, it was very traumatic. I actually didn't realize it, I think, at the time until I got older and was able to reflect and look back and be like, wow, that was really messed up, wow. <laughs> you know? Uh, so, And he was <clears throat> present through your entire childhood. He was present through my entire childhood, uh, and my parents stayed together until I was 24, so right up until okay. after I graduated college, and then they actually got divorced finally, which is was many, many years coming. Wow. Um and just to sort of backtrack and yeah, so that's about my mom or my dad, but my mom was like the best mom ever. Like, mm-hmm. so she was, she was a nurse. She worked her butt off. Uh, she was a, uh, neuro, uh, neuro nurse at Harborview for oh, like wow. almost 40 years. Wow. So, uh, very dedicated, very, very, like I learned everything about work ethic from her mm-hmm. and she was the most kindest loving mom ever so it was just weird it was like weird dichotomy where i had like this very yeah. very angry man as my father but this incredibly loving mother but uh finally they made the decision to get divorced when i was 24 and then my father moved out and then i never spoke to him again wow so yeah that was the last time i i spoke to him so wow. that was that was the family dynamic yeah and then um how did that like it, you you kind of touched on it but like th- that how did that influence like your I guess maybe perception of the world or like people in general, like having this weird dichotomy of like, um, the two people that you should look up to and respect the most in life, maybe, um, as a kid, like how did that impact you and just how you perceive the world? And, you know, I, I remember I was really scared a lot of the time as a kid Hmm. up until like I was a teenager. I, I just, I don't know. I like, I just had a lot of fear. Just a fear about like everything. Uh, I don't. It, it it was like kind of like this irrational fear, I guess. Yeah. Um, that would, I guess, manifest in different ways. But I remember just being fearful all the time up until you know probably I was like eleven or twelve years old, and then sort of got into my preteen and then teen years was when I think I sort of started coming into my own. But I think now as an adult looking back. And I look back at several failed relationships in my adult (laughs) life and I'm like, hmm, like maybe my parents' relationship or how I viewed love or things was a little bit skewed from from my experience. So I've been trying to do a lot of work on myself 
to process a lot of that trauma and process what I what I went through as a child and what I saw and like what love is and what love means to me so I can move forward yeah. having like a healthy relationship right yeah I uh, I usually wait till the kind of the latter half of the podcast to ask these kind of questions but before we get into some of the other parts of your story if if there's someone listening that is in in a place of like a childhood like that um, where they're experiencing a lot of difficulties in the home life and and with parents that might be abusive um, do you have any like just general like either advice encouragement or recommendations for someone that might be in that place of life yeah um it's hard when you're a kid right because it's hard to imagine like what the future is going to hold, yeah. you know, but I think if you, you know, if you're in a place where you feel that you, you need help or you can't, you know, you don't have to do things on your own. Like you don't have, I, I remember I always had like a set of friends around me or like people that I could talk to about it. So I was able to process it, like having a support system, reaching out for help, telling somebody, um, I think it's really, really important. Also just knowing that, you know, you, are amazing. You're beautiful just as you are. You have so much strength in you as a human being. Um, when abuse happens, it is not your fault. It is, it is in, incredibly wrong and nobody should have to go through that. And you can always reach out for help. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's awesome. Um, let's kind of fast forward a little bit now. So you were honor student, basically all through high school, straight A's, um, through most of your childhood. Um, and then you and I were talking before getting on the podcast, but you had um, kind of some experience with your brother and like that led to some some challenges. So let talk, tell me a little bit about that. Like where where in high school or teenage years did um, you kind of experience some challenges? Yeah. So, well, before like high school, like it was in junior high that I started you know, having realizations about my sexuality and being gay, although I wasn't ready to even put words to it or understand what what it was or, mm-hmm. or what was going on. Because I can remember having uh, those thoughts as a really, really young kid, right? Okay. Like six, seven years old. <clears throat> but they really started to, you know, come to a head as I was going through puberty and like kind of as, you know, hormones are starting to rage, becoming a man. And, and I was, you know, having these thoughts, you know, about, uh, other, you know, other men of same sex thoughts. And I was just like, Oh, I can't swear. So, Oh crap. You know, like <laughs> I was going to say something else like, Oh my God, like what is going on? It, it, it was very, very traumatic because it, I immediately went to a place in my head of like, this is wrong. Like mm-hmm. this, I can, there's no way that I can be like this. Like why, why am I having these thoughts? Why am I like this? You know, this just can't be right. This is this is not right. This something is very very wrong here. Yeah. You know, because growing up in this like heteronormative society and like Indian culture is very very homophobic and mm-hmm. it's very like materialistic and judgmental. I'm just saying that like some people might might be <laughs> mad about me saying it, but it's 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 very like that. Like especially for like the immigrant community and stuff too. It's mm-hmm. very it's very about show. It's very about like you know, my children are the best and I have the best marriage and we have the best house and look at how great our life is. And they're like, you know, doctors, my children are doctors and engineers. And that's what the, you know, Indian parents yeah. want for their kids. Do you think that that's because they like, there's this, um, 
perception that like if you immigrated here you have to like prove that the immigration was like some sort of like success or that it was worthwhile to immigrate i think that's part of it yeah. i think it's also just entrenched in indian culture yeah um sure. you know like even back in india too like we had the, they had the caste system and everything so it's, right. it's very about status yeah. right it's very about these levels of society that you come from right and yeah. like your station in life and you know so hmm. um yeah, coming from, like, that background, I think that just sort of bleeds over into, you know, the immigrant experience as well. Yep. So it's, I think it's a very Asian thing, yeah. too, right? Like, not just South Asian, but, uh, you know, other Asian uh, families and uh, cultures as well. Yeah. So being the, whatever they call it, the min the model minority, although we hate that. <laughs> <laughs> we hate that term. So I struggled right off the bat. I mean, I, it made me very depressed. I was very suicidal, like, a, a lot. Like, I was pretty much in that dark state, at least a point every day in my life until I finally did come out when I was 24. Wow. But, you know, being a preteen, I just didn't know what to do. I kept it a secret. I never told anybody. Um, I went from this like total goody two shoes kid, you know, that was just super n about not breaking the rules, following the rules, being the best in school, all this stuff. And then as soon as that happened, uh, there was like a, f a switch that flipped in my head. And that school was still important to me, but then I was finding ways, looking back, I realized now to numb the pain, to mm. self-medicate, to get myself out of these dark states. Yeah. Of And that's just sort of the nature of being closeted, right? Yeah. Of not being able to accept yourself, not being able to love yourself, feeling completely alone, isolated, disconnected, because you feel like you're the only one in the world that's feeling like this. Yep. Right? Uh, so that started me on this path. Uh, to, you know, where we're getting with this story. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I l really looked up to my brother. And when I was in high school, he was in college. He was at UW and he was in the fraternity I ended up joining. And I sort of saw these like kind of party animal ways, um, experimenting with drugs and different things. And, and I, I sort of went down that path with him a little bit before I got to college. And then I got to college and I joined a fraternity at the University of Washington and sort of just kind of went buck wild with partying, I guess you could say. <laughs> and I went from this guy that really, really was all about school to completely flipping that script. And I was I pretty much majored in partying in college <laughs> and school was like a small, small bit of my actual <laughs> college experience. <laughs> so, yeah, that was uh it was fun, but it was it was crazy, and and uh, yeah, I, I look back sometimes, and I'm like, man, I don't really have a lot of memories of being in class. I have a lot of memories of parties, though, yeah. you know. So well, it was it was that your first time, kind of out of the house, um, out of uh, the situation of this kind of dark cloud of living under your dad. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. that you felt at least kind of free to be your own person, not walk on eggshells maybe. Yeah, totally. It, it was, it was, it's this interesting dichotomy there too, because I was still in the closet in college. So mm -hmm. it was like, there was part of me that was breaking free and discovering who I was and experimenting with different things. But then there was also this other dark cloud that I had put on myself of being in the, totally in the closet and hiding this, you know, from all my friends and yeah. my family. Right. And it, it just like, it's like I was having sexual encounters with, with other guys, but like I was totally trying to play off the fact that I was totally straight, you know, um, <laughs> which I look back now and I'm just like, oh my God, like, you know, who was I kidding? Um, 
but there was just this whole self-denial part of my identity, right? Mm. Where I just could not admit that. There's just no way, right? Yeah. Because it just couldn't, I just couldn't even face that or it just couldn't even be part of my, of who I was. There's yeah. just no way that I was gay. Mm. Uh, so that I think came out in, in different ways, but mainly I think it was just like, I did a lot, I drank a lot and I did a lot of drugs yeah. in college. I. I went out a lot. I was a club kid. I was a rave kid. I was in the whole electronic music scene. I, mean, I still love electronic music, but now, now I'm sober. But um, yeah, I was just, I was doing drugs every, all the time on the weekends. You know, like that was just sort of like my life yeah. being social, partying. That was, that became sort of like my new identity. Yeah. And, and during that time, uh, you've used this word before um, and other times we've interacted, but like you were able to maintain, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Like you yep. were able to maintain like, decent grades like you were able to still be present and have relationship and all those kind of things yeah. during that time oh yeah definitely i i was going to school i mean sporadically but <laughs> I, I was actually able to maintain a decent grade point average freshman year mm, didn't start out so great but then my grades improved and then i ended up making dean's lifts uh like sophomore junior year so you know i i, I sort of bounced back from a yeah. from a rough start in school but yeah i had a ton of friends really active social life i was working at one point, two side jobs, I was working at Harborview Medical Center in neurology neurosurgery. That was like my main college job um, that I'd work throughout the year. And then for a short time, I worked at the Cheesecake Factory um, in downtown Seattle. Nice. So I did, did a restaurant job for a little while with other people in the Greek system. So cool. yeah, uh, I, like you said, I, I maintained very well. Like, you know, even though I engaged in a lot of substance use, yeah. Um, I wouldn't class my, classify myself as like being a substance abuser, I guess right. you could say. Um, even after college, I I graduated from UW. I went backpacking through Europe for a couple months, came back, and then still worked my job at Harborview for a few months trying to figure out like, okay, I got my bachelor's in economics. Like, what am I going to do with that? What do I really, like, which path do I want to go? Yeah. Right. It was like, I, I was always interested in entertainment and film and television, but I didn't really know how I could break into that. So I got a job, uh, like an entry-level sales job for a small aviation company for about a year and a half and then moved out of my parents' house because I'd moved home after graduation. I lived in Seattle, in different neighborhoods in Seattle during college, okay. moved home, then moved out with some friends in a neighborhood back in the city in Seattle. And then uh, after that company, I got a job at a local television station, okay. uh, KCTS which is the local PBS station in Seattle. And I did that for three years doing underwriting sales, production funding. I was on-air talent. And then I used being like an on-air talent for pledge drives to get a local talent agent and then was uh, submitting myself and booking little small acting gigs and stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, it was Megan Johnson that actually connected me with her former talent agent so oh no kidding mm -hmm. oh wow well we'll get to talking about her yeah here yeah, yeah, yeah exactly so crazy yep so uh and it was during that time that I met my partner or my boyfriend at, well he's now out of my life but at the time he became my partner my boyfriend and we started dating and then it wasn't too long after our relationship started that I'm trying to think. So it was a little bit prior to that relationship starting. I had started getting kidney stones oh. and I started getting prescribed painkillers by mm -hmm. my doctors. <clears throat> and were when, you still, 
were you still uh, using substances at all, like while you were? Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. After, I, after you graduated? Yeah. Sorry, oh, just to oh, give yeah. complete context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To- yeah, totally. Yes, I still was. I mean, I probably drank and partied more than the average person, okay. I would say. But I also was still, I still maintained my job. You know, yeah. like I went to work every day, mostly, um, you know, and had a very active social life, um, you know, do regular people in their 20s, like, you know, do Coke on the weekends or Molly. I don't know. <laughs> you know, probably, probably not. not probably not most, right? Yeah. But I still, you know, went to work and uh, paid my bills and everything, you know, yeah. like was, was I considered myself to, to be thriving. I should also mention that I did get a couple of DUIs. So I got one okay. my senior year of college and then I got one um, right before I met my boyfriend. Wow. So that second one, that really woke me up to like, okay, uh, the way I'm living life is not working right now, right? So I actually got sober at that time. I stopped drinking for almost a year um, and stopped stopped everything for a short amount of time. And then then when I met my ex, uh, uh, we started smoking weed together and then I still didn't drink. uh, And then, so... That's where I was with him. Prior to that, I was getting prescribed painkillers by my doctor for kidney stones, and that sort of like sparked something in me where I was like, okay, I really like the way this makes me feel. Mm. So started seeking that out recreationally, and then when I met him, we sort of immediately jumped into taking pills together. Mm. And then shortly after that, uh, we found a Oxycontin dealer, and then that's when everything just started to fall apart. Wow. Man. So, yeah. So I I, I was ha- had this great career in television. Yeah. And then basically became an Oxycontin addict uh, and was in this codependent, co-addictive relationship. And from the surface, it looked like we had a great life. You know, we had a great apartment in Ballard in a really kind of nice neighborhood in Seattle. Uh, he had a really good job uh, working for like a big box home improvement company. And... Like I said, we maintained for a while, but yeah. the, but the addiction it was started to rear its ugly head, and like we started borrowing money from friends and family because oxy's not cheap. And then it was during that time I quit KCTS and I got a job with a radio station called KEXP okay. in Seattle, and that was a really dope position. They hired me to be like their new uh, New York sales guy because uh, one of the big DJs had moved out to New York, and they were like simulcasting out there. So they were flying me to Manhattan and Brooklyn like once a month and I was taking meetings out there. Like, you know what I mean? Like it was really dope. I was meeting with really cool music venues and I got to meet uh, like some cool minor celebrities like DJ Reka I was telling you about who was this big South Asian queer uh, Bhangra Bollywood DJ out there. And it was, you know, like I'm in my mid to late 20s. What was I? I think I was 27. Yeah. I think 26, 27. You're and getting I, to experience yeah, the world. Yeah. And I'm get, see new things. Yeah. And, I mean, it was f- fantastic, but I to do it. Yeah. And I just could not keep my stuff together. You know, mm-hmm. like I was a full blown opioid addict at that point. Wow. So needless to say, I didn't last super long at KEXP. Um, I made it, I think nine or 10 months and then I got laid off, which 
totally understand, <laughs> you know, when you stop showing up for work, you know, in big chunks at a time because you're just in so much withdrawal and mm. what we would call dope sick. Uh, you know, that takes a toll on on your life and, yeah. and everything. So, yep, I got laid off in December of 2009. Okay. And then... Uh, went on unemployment. I tried to start like my own media company shortly thereafter, but it didn't last long. I was also like working with, uh, I had a new talent agent at that time and was still going out on acting gigs, but then that fizzled out too. And I actually worked for the agency for a short amount of time too. Um, but then that fizzled out as well. And then everything just fell apart from there. Mm-hmm. So, and then my ex lost his job. So then we were both jobless and we ended up getting evicted from one apartment to the next and then finally just became homeless. I think it was like, I want to say fall of 2011. Man. Yeah. It's just this kind of like slow snowball of just one little thing to the next little thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's not just, it's not overnight that all of a sudden is like, oh, I decided to try this one thing one time and then, and then my life, everything yeah, fell, fell apart. apart. It's, it's um, like these little just, dominoes uh, yeah have you ever heard of frogs in boiling water yep yeah yeah so it's like that so if anybody has ever hasn't heard that it's basically like if you put a frog in boiling water it will immediately jump out right but if you put a frog in cold water and you slowly turn up the temperature and the water gets warmer and warmer and warmer it will stay in the water. It won't jump out even until it's ultimately boiled to death. Yeah. Right. So it's, ter- it's such a it's disgusting, disgusting yeah, analogy, it's, it's, yeah, it, but, <laughs> but it, it makes sense, right? Because like yeah. if we if we could see the future and we could see what a total, you know, crap crap storm is, it, yeah. what our life would become, we would immediately choose something different. We would jump out of the boiling water, yep. right? But that's not how life works. Life is a slow boil around yep. us, it's right? A slow so progression it's of just a slow, and... yeah, slow progression until you ultimately find yourself in this situation that you never in a million years would have thought that you would be in. But it's so normalized because it all happens so slow. It's such yep. a slow progression that all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, I'm a I'm a, now I'm a heroin and meth addict and I'm homeless, Mm. (laughs) you know, I I go from like, you know, college graduate, you know, career in media, boyfriend, great, you know, kind of great adult life to now I'm a drug addict and I have nowhere to live. Yep. There's a, uh, a book and I'm, I'm not going to remember the author's name. I'll throw it in the show notes at the end, but there's a book called the compound effect. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's kind of the, the adverse of what we're talking about, but on the positive end, right. But like life is a series of small compound choices. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, about compound interest and interest rates, right. And like the, how that helps build your, your, uh, financial portfolio in theory. Right. But like on in life, it's the same thing. Like you make the choice every day to get up at six o'clock and one choice leads to the next one. Right. And you can choose to get up and work out, or you can choose to get up and not work out. You can choose to get up and eat like crap, or you can choose to eat well. Yep. And you don't get fit on one day of making that choice. You get fit over the course of yep. months of just one, one little choice leading yep. to another. It, it is. It's, um, all, it's all, it's the same kind of concept. Yep. It's all small choices. Every day you are presented with a series of choices and you can make the decision one way or the other, but sooner or later those start stacking up. Right. And those start leading you down a certain path. And it's like, where are you going to go? Yeah. So what is this, uh, forget how you said it so beautifully a second ago, but like 
this kind of culmination of these series of choices, you found yourself homeless. Yeah. Um, so, so where, like, what is that kind of pinnacle of where you hit here? Or, yeah. Or rock bottom, I guess. Yeah. That was definitely not my rock bottom though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have a saying in recovery, like every time you think you've hit rock bottom, there's a trap door. Oh geez. Uh, so you would think that that would be a big aha moment, but ultimately it was not. So, uh, at that point we had started smoking heroin and smoking meth just cause why not? <laughs> you know, it's like, Hey, um, and so we lost our apartment. So we ended up moving up to, it's called Snohomish County, which is North of Seattle. It's where we were sort of getting all of our drugs from, excuse me. And found a place to live with a couple of other drug addicts, another couple. And I was, you know, giving them like a hundred bucks out of my unemployment just to like stay in one of their extra rooms. And, uh, so we stayed there for a couple of months and then that's when we started stealing, boosting from stores to make money. Cause we needed money for food and we needed money for drugs and, you know, just to survive. Uh, cause I was getting like very, very little from unemployment and then my ex was not getting anything. So, um, and then we just bounced around to a couple of places and he surprisingly, cause he had worked retail, like knew how to steal from stores, like just boosting and stuff. I had never stolen anything in my life before. And so it was very scary and weird, but you do enough drugs, you know, you get high enough and, and then you're like, okay, let's do it. You know? Hmm. And at that point I was just like a total shell. I always say this, I was a shell of a human being. I did not recognize myself the way I thought, the way, you know, the way I acted, everything had completely changed, yeah. right? Like if you see me right now, if you'd see me then, you probably wouldn't even recognize me, yeah. you know? Um, and cut off contact with like all my friends, family and everything yeah, at that point. Yeah, I was just going to yeah. ask about yeah. that. Like no. how, I mean, relate, you talked about how great your mom was. Like, do you have any relationship with any of your, or your social life in college and friends? Yeah, no. So like I had burned a lot of bridges Leading up to that point, borrowing, asking for money, borrowing money, not paying it back, you know, like just in full-blown addict mode. Wow. So, you know, I – and, you know, I, my number kept changing because I had to get different phones because I couldn't keep up on bills. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just like that's sort of like all these red flags of that kind of life, right? So people just didn't know where I was. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I had no connection to my loved ones. I was very isolated. I was very alone meeting other people that were in that same state. So it just breeds despair and loneliness. And then that leads to, you know, doing acts of desperation, which leads to crime, you know, mm. and just being with these other lost souls um, that, you know, these are the, these were types of folks, like I don't want to judge anybody, but I never would have been around people like this in my, in my previous life. You know, yeah. I'd never been exposed to anything like yeah. this. And if you, your 15 year old self had looked forward. Yeah. Right? would not have, have thought that, oh, now I'm, you know, stealing from Fred Meyer, you know, and then returning stuff, stealing stuff and then returning it, uh, you know, for cash or for gift yeah. cards or, you know, just weird sh stuff, yeah. you know, like, what? Like, what the F, you know, <laughs> what am I doing with my life? Like, but I just couldn't see it. I was just like, okay, well, this is what I'm doing now, you know, because yeah. I got to get high. I got to get more meth or more heroin, or we have to, you know, pay for a, a, a motel to stay tonight. Yep. So you're just in survival mode. Yep. I always say it's like groundhog's day every day. So that slowly exacerbated to, um, 
moving in with this woman and her husband, they sort of rescued us and took us in. And she was really into, she's a big meth addict and she was really into like property crime, fraud, checks, writing, you know, forging checks, things like that. And it was there that my ex and I, we learned how to do like fraud and like identity theft and retail fraud and and things. And so Mm -hmm. we kind of picked up some skills from her and then sort of took it and ran with it and did at, at, so like a lot of damage in a year and a half. So we stayed with her for about four or five months, then sort of went off on our own and then bounced around, uh, living in hotels and motels and just doing a ton of identity theft and kind of picking up other people along the way that would help us. And then ultimately after a year and a half, on March 28th, 2013, I was a, a three, there was three of us. It was me, my ex, and then a, a friend of ours. And the three of us were arrested at a hotel in Muckleteo, Washington. Hmm. And that was the night that my life changed. What was that like? I mean, was it SWAT team breaks down the door or was it like a knock on the door and there's a no, so, law enforcement officer yeah. there? And so like, how did I, that, like, yeah. like so, there was, so you there, spent a year and a half like getting away with all of this. Well, I, I, there was one time when we actually got busted by the cops in that year and a half, but they let us go. And that oh, was wow. pretty crazy. So we had been doing a lot of retail stuff, um, a lot of stuff at Nordstrom. Um, okay. Please don't ban me from there. <laughs> <laughs> I shop there now legally. Um, and we did a lot in like, a, in like a, just a couple of months. And they had caught on to us and we were just being really careless and stupid. And so I went and did a pickup of a bunch of stuff we had bought fraudulently at the Bellevue Square Nordstrom, which is here in Bellevue, Washington. It's a really nice mall. Um, the mall I still shop at to this day and had shopped at it in my previous life, you know. Um, but that day, like, it was just crazy. There was my there was a lot of product that we had that we had purchased, picked up. I don't know if they were already onto us or what, or but anyway, I got back to the car with my ex and then somebody else that we were there with. And as we're driving out of the parking garage, like seven Bellevue police just comes, cop cars come swarming in on us, oh, like geez. from all directions. I was just, and then guns drawn, like get out of the car, get out of the car. And I mean, it was just straight out of a movie. I was just like, what the? Like wow. what? So we get out of the car, like <laughs> arms raised, like you know, they're like hands behind your back, you know, and then, so they cuff us, and then they bring us out and they sit us on the ground, like on that main drag between the mall and the parking garage. So literally, all these shoppers come out from like different areas of the mall and are watching this, and I'm just like so embarrassed. I could, oh, I was just like, oh my god, I cannot believe this is happening. <laughs> and uh, so that had happened, but they actually ended up letting us go. So why? Um, I we both basically, um, my ex and I were just super scared, and so we kind of just told them the truth of like what was going on, and we were just like we have been living with this person, and this is what we've been doing, and like I we we need help, and like you know kind of just told the truth. Yeah, and they just let us go. Like oh, I think because they were just like, yeah, let's let them go and let's let them just do more damage and we'll build more of a case on them. Mm-hmm. Basically, cops have been known to do that. So uh, so yeah, they did. And then <laughs> we went off and didn't change and, you know, went wow. for probably another, probably another year. Wow. Yeah. So 
they were able to just continuously gather evidence on us. Yeah. So you think in that meantime, like they knew who you were, had at least some sort of, like, mm -hmm. they knew yeah, you were. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay, so you're, crazy. so you're in the hotel room. Yeah. So, a no, no, no. Later? Yeah. So, a year yeah. later. So, a year later. It's March 28th, 2013. Um, so, we were staying at like the Marriott Town Place Suites on Muckleteo Speedway. And uh, uh, my our friend and my ex had gone out to rent a car, and I was still in the room. And we were going to like go do, you know, more fraud and then like go to the casino because that's what we liked to do. And, uh, I remember we had always said, like, if we ever see anything, ever see cops, or we ever get a phone call that said, like, get out, you'd literally drop everything and just get the F out wherever you are. Right. Yeah. So I gone out to smoke a cigarette. I came back to the room and I remember like, um, housekeeping or something had like said, do you need your room clean? Because I hadn't had them clean it in a couple of weeks. We'd been living there because I just cleaned it. Right. I was like, yeah, can you come back later? So apparently when I was in the shower, they poked their head in the room and saw, like, I didn't think it was that suspicious, but then again, I was a total, you know, meth addict in there. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> Probably looked suspicious. <laughs> they saw, like, a printer and a bunch of our – we had, like, a bunch of MacBook Pros and MacBook Pro boxes and iPad boxes of, like, all this stuff we had bought and were selling, and that's, like, what we did, right? And so they poked their head in. It looked suspicious, so they called the cops. So when my ex and our friend were down at like the office, they saw cops show up. So they called me and they're like, cops are here, get out. So I throw my clothes on. I don't even put my shoes on. I grab my bag and then I just book it out of the room and like run down the street, like in my feet, like no shoes. And then they're at the Taco Bell around the corner. So I like jump in the car and we take off. So... We go do another round of fraud, get some money, go buy some more drugs, go to the casino. Um, and then our, our uh, a, a good girlfriend of ours who had sort of been working with us doing that kind of stuff, um, we told her to, like, go check out the room and see if there were still cops there. So we were just probably had been up for days and just not thinking clearly. We never heard from her because she had been confronted by the cops and arrested. So, but we decide, let's just go back to the hotel. <laughs> like, oh, so, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's I like, haven't heard from her. So yeah, it must so be fine. Must be fine. Yeah. I like that makes any sense. But like, then, then again, like I said, we must've been up for days and I think there was some sort, I, I honestly believe there is some sort of like divine intervention going on that was leading us back there mm. to just go back. Right. It didn't make any sense. Why would we do that? But yeah. we just did. None of us none of us stopped to say, Hey, maybe we shouldn't go back. <laughs> like, I don't know. I like, I'm, th I was thinking about it. I'm like, man, we just all were like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> you know, like we haven't heard from Mel. Oh, it's fine. You know? Jeez. So we, we pull into the parking lot and then they're just waiting for us. Like we didn't see them. And then all of a sudden our, our car is surrounded by like two cop cars, two more pull up guns drawn, get out of the Jeez. car you know, cuff us. They're like, we got them, we got them, you know, because obviously they'd been waiting for us. So in the meantime, throughout that day, they had gotten a search warrant. 
ransacked our room, got, got all of our stuff, like, you know, had already done a whole number on the and room. And all the stuff was still in your room, yeah. more or less. So yeah. they had the, all, all this evidence. evidence yeah. Oh, yeah. Got yeah. into our computers. Yeah. You know, computers were sent to the Fed. Secret Service got into our – they sent our, our computers to the Secret Service. Secret Service investigated what? us. Yeah, it was crazy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I was like, what? Like when I found out when my attorney's like, yeah, Vic, the Secret Service are investigating you guys. I was like, for what? We didn't harm the president, you know? Yeah, like what? That's weird. But apparently with like anything that could potentially be like counterfeiting, but we were not counterfeiting, but like uh, any like financial crimes, like the Secret Service investigates interesting. it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. No yeah, idea. fun fact for you. Huh. So yeah, so I was, that's March 28th, 2013. And honestly, that's the day that like my life got saved, uh, because my clean and sober date is March 29th, 2013. So that was the last day I ever touched any type of substance drugs. I mean, I didn't really drink when I was using, but I haven't drank. I haven't touched a single drug. I haven't smoked a cigarette since that day. Wow. That's amazing. How long has it been? Nine years. Uh, so it's today, end of July, nine years and four months. Wow. Almost to the, actually to the day. Congratulations. It's, it's July 29th, right? Well, for those listening, because yeah. uh, this won't go public for at least a couple more months. Yeah, it's July so. 29th it's right now. Ju- July 29th <laughs> when we're recording. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's so, awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's amazing. So you were uh, arrested and then I'm assuming incarcerated for yeah, some time. Or- yeah, so I ended up being incarcerated for 58 months. Wow. So five, just under five years. Okay. So yeah, I served five years in the Washington state prison system. So wow. it was... How many counts against you or what were the charges? So we ended up pleading guilty to 25 counts of identity theft. And then I had one drug charge as well, possession of a controlled substance. So I went from zero to 26 felonies in one fell swoop. So, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I mean, like there technically could have been they threatened us with hundreds and hundreds of charges. And we did what's called a global resolution where they basically had everything run through Snohomish County because there was charges in King County. There was charges in Pierce County and Snohomish, in Snohomish, in Skagit. There was potentially federal charges. Oh, wow. So they just wrapped it all into one deal. And they were like, we weren't going to fight it. I wasn't not yeah. stupid. I was like, yeah, I'm you know very guilty. Yeah, evidence, I'm like, I'm like, I'm, no, no, no. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm very guilty. Yeah. I, I understand that. There was never a time where I was like, I'm going to try and fight this. It's yeah. like, it was like, no, like. Please show some mercy because yeah. I was a ma- I was a really yeah. big drug addict. You know what I mean? Like, was there a place in there um, where, like, in that moment where you felt any sort of, I don't know if relief is the right word, but like that, like you knew that this was gonna be something positive for you, or like, or was it like, oh shoot, like I'm arrested? Like, what what was your mental state at, yeah. at that point of like? So in the beginning, I mean, it's like the moment of getting arrested, I was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. And it was scary. And I just it sucked. Right. And then I went through detox and withdrawal in jail, you know, so I detoxed for like it was a couple weeks. Yeah. um, Which was awful. And then the cloud slowly started to lift. 
right? And then I, it was scary because I ended up sitting in jail for 16 months, right? So jail and prison are two different things. If people don't understand that. Yeah, explain that a little bit. So jail is like, it's like by county. It's a local municipality like holding station, right? You are put in jail if you are charged with felonies but have not been convicted, right? So you can bail out or you can just get held. So there's, the reality is there's many, many innocent people sitting in jail that who cannot afford bail will just sit in jail. Yeah. That's like a reality of our criminal justice system, right? Yep. I was very guilty. I knew I was going to be doing (laughs) time. So I was like, I'm not going to even try and bail out or ask for money from my family or anything like that to bail out. I was like, nope, like I'm here. Yeah. Let's just try and get the best deal possible. Right. Um, so jail was the worst time that I did because I did not go outside for 16 months. Mm -hmm. I did not like, you don't have music, like music and just think about being able to listen to music and being able to step outside of your house. Yeah. Like those are things, normal everyday things that all of a sudden, if those are taken away, yeah. like you kind of take that stuff for granted, right? Like you just think like that's very easy. If you are not able to go outside and feel fresh air, feel the sun on your face, listen to a song to like, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, for, and music music's really important to you Music's too. very important to me. Music yeah. is like oxygen for me, right? Mm-hmm. So to be deprived of that for like 16 months, it was awful. Um now things have changed in jails. I mean, you still can't go outside if there's if they are not set up for that. Because jail is not meant for long-term housing. It's like either you wait there until trial or you get a deal and then you go to prison. <clears throat> um, and that's anything over a year. So any sentence over 365 days is prison time. Okay. So then you'll go. And prison, yeah. it might sound messed up to people, but prison's so much better than jail. <laughs> like <laughs> prison is so, you like, you want to get to prison, right? <laughs> if you're going <laughs> to do time. And I'll explain why in a minute. Um and then anything, uh, any sentence under a year, like misdemeanor stuff, you'll mm-hmm. do it in jail. Okay. <clears throat> right? But like I said, jails are not meant for long-term housing. Many of them don't have outside yards or rec areas where you can actually like go outside and get fresh air. Yeah. Now things are ha- are different from, from what I understand. Like I have a friend right now who's in Whatcom County Jail, and he actually has a music player and stuff. So it was just like Snohomish County at that time was not set up for, yeah. for that kind of stuff. So um, – but once I got to prison, like they have the prison yard, you can pretty much go outside. Like, you know, you have yard time, you have rec time, you can lift weights. That's what I did. Like you get a little music player, you can buy and download music. Like there's just more freedoms in prison. I had a job and everything, which I'll get to, but, um, but sitting in jail, like that was awful, but it's also like where I rediscovered myself. Mm -hmm. Right. Because the cloud of addiction slowly dissipated, right? And it's like I found light again in my life. Like I found myself and it it was after a couple months that I started, you know, I had never worked out a day in my life. And then I started actually to like work out, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Very, they didn't have weights. Um, It was just very like rudimentary stuff, uh, push-ups and crunches and then we had little laundry bags that I'd fill with books and like do 
uh, curls with that, right? Yeah. And then we'd my cellies and I would find ways to like do resistance stuff with towels. We had to be uh, very uh, ingenuitive huh. in in figuring out ways to work out. But we, cellies is that like? Oh, sorry. So your cellie is like your roommate. Okay. Right. So in Snohomish County Jail, it was two man cells. Okay. So you had like a big unit open unit and then you had cells like okay. along the outsides of it right so you had like your big day room a couple areas with a tv and then you had two-man cells okay yeah does that make sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah, totally. yeah. so celly is yeah. a term for cool. your your roommate yeah yeah okay. <laughs> so but yeah i started working out i started writing again i'd always loved to write and um i started taking screenwriting classes uh through ucla extension before i uh like things took a turn when I was still working at KCTS. So I just started to discover myself again. Mm. My family reached out to me. A couple of friends reached out to me. So I started, you know, building back up those relationships, mm. right? They were very skittish at first, but they yeah. still made the decision to reach out. And I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. Uh, how, how important was that, like hearing from them and them initiating contact with you? Oh, it was everything, mm. right? Like I couldn't have done... My time probably would have been very different if I did not have the support of my family and a few friends. Yeah. Like it meant everything to me to be able to call them, hear their voice, to just, you know, talk out the way that I was feeling and, you know, let them know how I was doing, where my state of mind was, where I saw myself going the choices, the positive choices that I was making to continuously tell them I've stayed sober. I'm, I'm still sober. I'm still clean. Like I have not done anything, you know? Yeah. Um, it was really, really important. Like even getting, um, so in jail, you'd have to get handwritten letters, but once you get to prison, they have this like internal email system. It's called JPay. Um, it's a very evil corporation in my opinion, cause they gouge you for, financially to pay for everything but hmm. uh it's a internal system where like your family and friends can sign up for a jpay account and then they can email with you oh, so okay. you don't have internet in prison but it's like an internal system okay. if that makes sense yeah. but every email costs money oh. it all costs money every hmm. phone call costs money Jeez. you know songs are like you have to buy every song you know and those are like one to two to three dollars per song hmm. depending so it's like back when there's iTunes. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's like, like I, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no streaming. Yeah. Actually, I don't know. Maybe they have streaming. Now. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Things, the, yeah. Things are changing. Things yeah. are changing, but yeah, you have to pay for everything. Yeah. So, hmm. um, but yeah, that was really, really important to me. And then my best friend, Nicole, she like got into my Facebook for me and then slowly would start reaching out to certain people. And I'm like, can you please tell so-and-so that I'm here? you know, and just let them know that I'm safe and I'm alive and things. And so then I slowly started having more people write me. And, you know, I had a few, uh, a few groups of friends come and visit me when I was in prison and my, oh, wow. and my family came to visit me. So hmm. that's amazing. I mean, you, you not only push them away, but I mean, you stole from people and like, and then it shows the depth that they cared about you to still having I mean, to show up, be present, initiate relationship with you, um, and surround you when you were at your lowest. Um, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm very, very lucky. I'm very, very grateful. Yeah. You know, um, I think, you know, they, I like to think that they knew that that wasn't <clears throat> who I was at my core, Yeah. you know? Um, 
they knew that it was they saw past your action yeah you know you being you yeah exactly so and then i i knew i was grateful so i uh, I knew how lucky it was and that, and I was so grateful for it because, you know, the, the grace and like the, the compassion, yeah. you know, that they showed me. Yeah. So I like to, you know, say that my actions and the way I live my life, it's for me, but it's also, a, it's a testament to them. Yeah. And it's, you know, me showing accountability to them for, they all took a risk to let me back in their life, you know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I, I you know, like to live my life in honor of those choices mm. and what they did for me. That's amazing. What, uh, so then you went to prison for another four years or so? Yeah, I went to prison. Yeah, so I went to prison for another three and a half years. Yeah. So the prosecution was asking for an exceptional sentence above our standard sentencing range. So our standard sen- sentencing range for how many charges we pled mm-hmm. guilty to was five to seven years even for being a first-time felon. Um, prosecution was asking for 10 years, wow. which was very scary. I ended up getting seven, okay. which was 84 months, which, and then in Washington State, for good time, for good behavior, you get an automatic third off, So, which equals to 57 to 58 months, which okay. I ended up serving. So uh, we finally took our deal towards <clears throat> uh, the middle of 2014 and then finally got sentenced in August of 2014 and then that's when I left jail and got to go to prison, <laughs> so, <laughs> which was honestly uh, such a relief. Yeah, I remember stepping off that prison bus for the first time. So you go from jail, you go to the Washington Correction Center in Shelton, Washington. Mm-hmm. And that has general population, but it's also the receiving prison. So it's okay. where everybody goes for classification. Mm-hmm. So if you leave a county, municipality, jail, and you go to prison, you, your first stop is Shelton. And you go there for about eight weeks to get classified. Mm-hmm. And then you get basic, basically classified as minimum, medium, or close custody. Those are like the classification levels. Okay. And like what prison you're going to go to based on that. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, and then they calculate your release date if you do have a release date. Okay. So when I got to Shelton, it was like a vacation because <laughs> seriously, it was August. It was sunny. I remember stepping off that prison bus for the first time, feeling sunshine on my face. I like, I wanted to cry. I was just yeah. like, wow. Even being shackled, like in an orange jumpsuit, mm-hmm. I was still like, wow, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I remember that day, you know, they got us through <clears throat> intake and everything and receiving. And then I got to my unit and then we actually had yard that day. And so I remember getting to leave the unit and walk outside mm. for the first time in 16 months. And get I got to walk outside for an hour. And it was literally like the best hour ever. Mm. It was amazing. Like feeling the warmth just I, I was just smiling. It was it was so crazy. I'm like, I feel like I'm on vacation. Like I feel like yeah. I, it, you know, in prison. Like I literally felt like prison was a vacation. We had a radio in our cell. Like I got to hear music. I had been so removed from like all the hits, you know, of the yeah. past year and a half. And I got to hear music again. And I just remember like the first week I just sat on my bunk and I just, I was just smiling because I could see outside. I, Cause I couldn't see outside for a year as well mm. or for that 16 months. Wow. Cause I didn't see outside. And there was like big windows in my unit in Shelton and my like, and my cell and my bunk faced it. And I just like, just sat back on my bunk, <laughs> just like looking outside, listening to music. I was wow. so happy. 
that's amazing. It, it was. It, uh, it's one of those things, like, in life, you don't realize what you're grateful for mm-hmm. um, until you lose it. And, like, the things that, that are so simple for us that we take for granted. Yeah, I know. Um, and I, I and never. Walking I, outside, right? Yeah. Like, I, even on my drive over here from. So we're in Chelan, in case people don't don't know where yeah. we are. We're in Chelan, Washington, and I drove over from Seattle to Renton, Washington, from the other side of the mountains. And I remember driving over today, and I was listening to the new Odessa album, and I just saw the lake. I came upon it, and I just had this flashback to, like, being on my bunk in prison, or in jail, actually, and, like, the darkness there. And then I just was like, I'm in my new car and I'm listening to this great album and I'm getting to see this beautiful lake and it's sunny and it's warm and I'm free and I'm sober and I'm like, I get to go do this cool podcast and I get to go shoot video for my friend after this. Um, and I was just like, so grateful, you know, yeah. I was just so happy cause sometimes I can take that for granted. And like, yeah. it, it was, uh, I like, it always gives me a reference point for gratitude, mm-hmm. you know, because like life moves so fast and like life can get so stressful sometimes yeah. for all of us. Yeah. And to always just be like, reel it in because think about where you were and think about where you are now. Yeah. And it was just like, I, I have these just beautiful moments of gratitude where I'm just like, wow, I'm mm-hmm. so lucky and I'm so grateful. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I imagine when you were in the, your lowest states, like you couldn't have seen this, right? Like that situation of driving in your car. I, I assume that that probably felt that like you couldn't have even dreamed of being in the spot that you are now. It just felt like a million years away. Yeah. You know, like it just, I knew it was possible. Yeah. Right. Like I knew it was possible. And and it was those thoughts that actually helped me get through, hmm. you know, That's like, awesome. yeah, like creating future memories, I called it right. Mm-hmm. Like Actually, I like that. There was there was one time when I was in jail right before I got sentenced that a homophobic sergeant overheard one of my phone conversations and threw me in the hole in mm-hmm. solitary for a week simply for being gay. Mm-hmm. It's just basically what he it's what it boiled down to. I was basically talking about having a crush on like somebody that was in the in the unit with me who had left and I was just telling my best friend about it just like, "Oh, there's this really cool guy, you know, like it's like the first time I had felt like that in 16 months, you know, and it just, all phone calls are recorded. It just so happened that that got listened to by the sergeant and he basically threw me in solitary because he's like, I'm going to investigate this because it sounds like you were grooming this person, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, is this a joke? Like mm-hmm. it was crazy. And then he's like, I'm going to investigate you, blah, 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 blah. And, um, there was no investigation done. Nothing. They, I basically got thrown in the whole classification, came up to me. They were like, Mr. Chopra, why are you here? And I was like, uh, I don't know. Why am I here? They're, you know, they're like, well, there's no paperwork on you. There's no nothing. Hmm. And I was just like, wow. And they're like, we'll get you out of here. But it's ended up. What, it, okay. So all I know is from TV and maybe most of the listeners as well. Like when someone says it's thrown in the hole, like what does that actually mean? So that means, so solitary confinement is you are not in general population. You are thrown into a cell and you have no contact with anybody. Um, okay. and you are in your cell for 23 hours a day. You are fed in your cell. Um, you cannot leave. They re- in jail anyway, it's different in prison, but like, but it's all permanent lockdown. So in in Snohomish County Jail at that time, what solitary was, was, yeah, no other contact. You get out for one hour a day, and it's 
it can be any hour of the day. Hmm. One day it could be 3 a.m. The next it could be 5 p.m. Oh. And in that hour, you can either go walk in the little rec area that has slats that has, you know, let some air in, but you can't like see outside or you can shower and that's it. And wow. there's no other, uh, prisoners in everybody's locked down. So you, cause in general population, you all come out of your cells and you can interact and yeah. talk and like human to human contact, you know? Yeah. So in solitary, you have no human contact hmm. and you're locked up for 23 hours a day. Um, and in that cell too, the lights never went out. Oh, geez. So like, I, I felt like I was going crazy. Honestly, yeah. it was crazy. Say, what does that do to your mental state? To <clears throat> I was, have interaction it was, and it be... was, I was, it was, that was the worst. That's probably the worst week of my life, hmm. honestly. And I would have to like tie a sock around my eyes to like block out the light so I could sleep. Jeez. Um, but I would, to get through that. I would sit and I would sort of like go into like a meditative state. I didn't actually learn meditation until I got to prison, but I would go into like this meditative state and I would imagine, I would create future memories. I would like imagine being at like the gorge with my friends and like being reunited with my friends and like at this concert or I would like be at a EDM show and I would, I would hear the beat and I would like like feel the, you know, hear the music, feel the music and like imagine myself being surrounded by my friends and, you know, mm. just like things like that. Like I would think about these things. Yeah. Um, and that would help me get through it. Jeez. That's crazy. I, I mean, we talk a lot about, um, as an organization about being alone, like the difference of being alone versus loneliness and like solitude versus loneliness, but there's obviously ties between those two things. And like, it, it, it seems like, I mean, prison is one of the like places that 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 really plays out i guess like where it's like forced solitude in that sort of a situation especially mm -hmm, but i wouldn't um, i wouldn't it's i feel like the term solitude has a sort of like choice attached totally. to it right yep. like yeah, it's like i choose absolutely. i choose to be in yeah. solitude but, this is like forced disconnection yeah you know this yep. it's it's cruel and unusual yeah it is yeah it, it's 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 awful. I yeah. mean, and this is how we treat human beings. And you can think, well, you're incarcerated. You deserve it. You know, or people can, can think like that, but no human deserves that. Yeah. Right. Well, like, and, and we know that, I mean, human relationship and connection is equally as important as food and water. Yeah, like it is a hundred, hundred percent proven out. And so, so it's, it's the equivalent of like saying, well, we're not going to feed you for yeah, a week. Or yeah. We're not going to water you like where you're not yeah. going to get access to like. And I, I have friends who did have done time in California that have done decades in solitary. Oh my gosh. Like my friend Artie did 15 years in solitary. Wow. And his story is incredible, actually. Um, but how do you have I, the mental strength to? I mean, a week like it, like that sounds like hell. Yeah. But how do you go through, you know, fifteen years, 15 years of that, yeah. and still have any sort of like? And he's an amazing. Wow. He's an amazing human being, and they all are. Like, uh, I volunteered with this organization in California called Hustle 2.0, and we went into Pelican Bay State Prison, which is a supermax. Okay. And um one of the guys in that program, uh, he did 32 or 33 years in the shoe. They call it the shoe down there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, 30 something years Wow. in solitary. That's, I mean, that's it's like, oh, I mean, that's almost all the years that I've lived. Yeah. Right? yeah like, same, same. I mean, same. That's, yeah. you know, like that's, 
That's crazy. It's insane. And I was just yeah. looking at him like, wow. And yeah. he's, I mean, I can't imagine the kind of trauma that, you know, he's yeah. been through, but he's also incredibly resilient. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. You yeah. have to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So, but yeah, that's, well, that's, uh, that's sort of where I, that's how I got through hard times was kind of going into my head and manifesting what I wanted to happen in the yeah. future. Wow. So let's fast forward a little bit to like, where are you today? Like you, you served out your time. Um, and now you're back in the world. Yeah. Um, like what is, what has that kind of been like? So I want to backtrack just a little bit because where I am today is based on the choices that I made in the five years that I was away mm. because I used that five years to totally change who I was to completely rebuild myself. I always say this, I rebuilt myself, mind, body, and soul. I went from being 115 pounds, you know, shriveled up drug addict to I'm now, uh, I gained 30 pounds, over 30 pounds of muscle. I work out religiously. I started in jail and I never stopped. As soon as I got to prison, I hit the weight deck and I never stopped. I learned to lift weights and to work out on the yard, on the weight deck in prison with like these big burly dudes, you know, and I was this like scrawny little brown gay guy, you know, like, and, but I still put in the work and fitness is a huge part of my life. I, um, hmm. I'm one of those weirdo CrossFit guys, but I love it. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, it's just part of who I am and it's part of how I stay sober. I started writing again and, you know, really developed my, redeveloped my passion to want to be a filmmaker. Hmm. And I now have taken that into this life, but I started, I hand wrote two screenplays. While I, you were in prison? While I was in prison, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I wrote a, hand wrote a pilot and then I hand wrote a feature film. I'm still, I finished the pilot and the feature film I'm still working on right now. Um, and I've gotten them into Final Draft, which is a screenwriting software, finally. Um, and then I, uh, spirituality is very important in my life. So I actually started meditating when I was in prison um, and that completely changed my life. And mm. I meditate every day and I'm actually now a, a, a certified Reiki practitioner and Reiki healer, which wow. is like energy, energy work. I'm not sure if you're familiar with I'm that. Not, no. Yeah. So it's like energy healing. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, I basically set myself up to hit the ground running when I got out. Yeah. So I served 58 months, the last five months of my incarceration, I was transferred. I did all my prison time at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. Okay. And then I was transferred to a work release center in downtown Seattle. So for the last five months, I lived in Seattle at this work release center. I got a real job. I worked at a Italian restaurant in Seattle and got to basically, it's kind of like a halfway house. You like reacclimate. Okay. Yeah. Got a real job, was making real money, got to see my family and friends on like social outings and stuff. Mm. I mean, it's still definitely prison. Like I still like, but I got to get passes every day to like leave. Mm. Um, it was very stressful, but also very cool. Um, yeah. But it was very stressful because it was, they were always had like, it ain't hanging over your head. If you mess up, if you break the rules, you're going back, you yeah. know? Luckily, I never had a single infraction in my entire five years. So, and that's, I mean, not everyone, and maybe this is another difference between like prison and jail, but not everyone has that same experience leaving the system mm -hmm. of being able to like that um, reacclimation process. 
like that. 100%. So. 100%. Like, let's just be real. The recidivism rate in this country is close to 77%. Wait, say, so so, say what, that again? Yeah. So recidivism. Okay, what is that? So to recidivate means to be released from incarceration and to commit another crime and go back. Oh, okay. Right? Yep. So recidivism is the act of going back to prison. Okay. Right? So it's close to 77%. Wow. So... The system is not set up for you to succeed. It is yeah. set up to be a revolving door, right? I mean, we can, that's a whole, I mean, that's the whole huge part of the work that I do now in yeah. my life. But the reentry is a huge, huge problem, right? Support resources for system impacted people are just, it's pathetic. I mean, there are organizations and groups out there to help, but like overall, it's very, very hard. Housing and employment are the two biggest hurdles um, for anyone getting out of prison or incarceration. And even though we're like a a state that is like, you know, the ban the box state uh, on a job application, like they used to ask you if like, have you been convicted of a felon Mm -hmm. or of a felony? Um, If that's gone now, but still a standard background check is always run. Yeah. Yeah. So you're always going to have to face that, right? You're always going to have to tell your story or, or own up to it. And many people just won't hire you. Yeah. Same thing with getting an apartment or a house. People will not rent to you. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's huge. So my story, it's very, very, um, it's not rare, but it's not the norm. Yeah. Right. I was, yeah. Very lucky I had my bachelor's degree. I had a career prior to all of this. I knew what life could be like. I have yeah. a ton of support in yeah. the community with my family and my friends. So I'm very, very lucky. And even still, I struggled just mentally at certain points. Like, yeah. I mean, I I didn't get back. I didn't get in trouble. I haven't used again or anything like that. But even with all that, I knew I had days where I would struggle. So then I think about everybody else, right? Yeah. And I'm like, man, like if you, I even have days where... I've struggled mentally. What's it like for that, you know, that girl that's getting out of get out of prison and hasn't seen her kids that were taken away and doesn't have, you know, family or friends support? Like, what hope does she have? What about the guy, you know, that got clean in prison but has to be released back to the same environment that he was yeah. in? You know what I mean? Yep. What do you think they're going to go do? Yep. So. Yep. There's uh, a, um, a future story that will be told a little bit after years in the, this set that um, – literally the the jail that they would release her from and that they released people from that the house that they um access drugs was literally across the street from the jail that they would they were released back and it's like all right bye yeah and and across the street is the house that they got drugs from yeah where do you think they're gonna go like yeah they didn't have a car they didn't have a ride they didn't have someone to pick them up like Right what back, do, yeah. And it was literally like almost literally a revolving door. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, so to your point, it's it's not set up to help people succeed in many ways. No, I mean, even programs that are in place are just still so faulty and still just are, are don't really help. Like it's it's crazy. I could I could <laughs> I, I, I could go off on yeah. this, but anyway. So I I got out. I was released January twenty fifth of two thousand eighteen. And I kept my restaurant job until July. But when I was in work release, I met an amazing person. His name is Spencer. And he and I just immediately formed a brotherhood and a bond and a friendship because we both realized that we were both very motivated. We both had 
worked our asses off to change who we were in prison. He had he was just getting off seven years. I was getting off five. And we were both entrepreneurial minded and we both had film projects that we wanted to do. Hmm. So we ultimately just had a meeting of the minds one day and we're like, let's just start something together. So we wanted to start a production company. I got out in January, he got out in February and we were like, okay, let's do this. Like we wanted to tell stories of people getting out of prison, positive stories, stories like ours of people that use their time to better themselves, that were trying to break free from these shackles of the system, of recidivism, of their life prior, and to do something amazing with their life. That was, that's sort of, it's, it's shifting the societal paradigm mm. towards systems impacted people, towards the incarcerated and the formerly incarcerated. Uh, and then also inspiring others that are still currently incarcerated as well to say, hey, if I did this, if we did this, you can do this too. Yeah. So that's where Unincarcerated Productions was born. And that is my company, our company that I have been, we have been building from the ground up since 2018. And that is now what I'm doing full time. Wow. Uh, so it's a, uh, it's a really, really exciting time. It's yeah, it's four years in the making. I had, uh, I was working a day job, uh, pretty much the whole time up until uh, last September. And then now I've shifted to doing unincarcerated full time. And uh, we have several documentary films in the works. We've also done video production services. I just finished my very first two documentary short films. So yeah, it's, a very, awesome. it's a very, very exciting time. That's amazing. Are those films something that will be public at some point where yeah. people can watch them? Mm -hmm. and yeah, everything? yep, definitely, definitely. Uh, we have them you know, uploaded to like our, our YouTube for, um, for people to view, like I just, uh, applied for a couple of grants. So, you know, to show, to show to the, the decision makers with that. And so they'll be up for fundraising and then hopefully okay. we'll, so hopefully, they're, they're publicly viewable. Not now. yet. Oh, not okay, yet. They will be, no, they, but they will be. Okay. So okay. Ho our hope is to submit them to some, uh, short film festivals okay. as well and, and garner interest. Cause one of them we, uh, we want to turn into an actual feature length. Okay. film but yeah eventually yes um awesome. I, it's like i literally just finished them last week so <laughs> it's <laughs> very great. it's very very fresh it's very very yeah. new yeah well so. we'll make sure that uh like in the show notes and stuff we'll at least link your website yeah um, thank you yeah that would be anyone that would want to watch what you do and that would be great yeah yeah because yeah, we have some of our other stuff uh like video production work that we've done that's up on our website yeah uh, on our youtube on our instagram and, and yep. everything so but yep. this is actually like we've We've been developing, we actually have four documentaries in the works right now. Mm -hmm. And we've been shooting footage for them and developing them and been on pre-production. Like we just, uh, in January, we flew down to Texas uh, to shoot some footage for it. Uh, in May, we flew down to New Orleans and we actually got to interview Sister Helen Prejean, who actually wrote Dead Man Walking. Wow. Uh, so that's, um, she's the nun that Susan Sarandon played in the film. Wow. So yeah, it was, and, we're, and we're actually coming up on the 30th anniversary of, of the publication. So she was gracious enough to sit down and talk wow. with Spencer and I. And so we actually just made a short film about her. It's a 10 minute feature called sister abolitionist. And, um, so we were, that's one I just finished last week, mm. uh, wow. working with our team to, to finish it. So yeah, I directed that. I worked with a great editor on it. Uh, his name's Zach and he's fantastic. And so, yeah. Um, and then I have 
my other short film is about uh, William Bull Bullard, formerly of the Harlem Globetrotters. Okay. And so he was on the Globetrotters for 13 years, set like three Guinness World Records when he was on the team. Uh, has this incredible... We were having this conversation. I want to say rags to riches story, but I guess apparently that's maybe not a great term now anymore. <laughs> but he basically overcame so much adversity and poverty. Yeah. And, you know, his mother was uh, drug addicted and mm. he got out of the foster care system, survived abuse, wow. uh, survived gang life uh, to get out of that life and get on the Globetrotters and, and have this amazing career. And then he just recently retired. But also it's about his brother who is currently serving... Uh, a sentence. Um, he served 14 years of a 40 to 70 year sentence for a crime he did not commit. Wow. And his case has now been taken up by the Conviction Integrity Unit, and he's hoping to have an exoneration hearing coming wow. up. So yeah, so the short's about the two of them. They have this incredible, incredible story. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll be sure to, I mean, link your website to be able to show that because, um, yeah, I mean, so much of the work that you're working to do, especially around like... Um, just your, your mission of sharing stories of, uh, previously incarcerated people like that. That's why what we're doing, um, is so important is to be able to, to help people feel less alone in what they're experiencing. Right. And mm -hmm. that's why we have you on. That's why we have different types of stories on. And so, um, I would love to be able to just highlight like anyone who's listening to this that might be inspired by your story, to then be able to use what you end up producing and continue to produce that I, I would assume is going to be very relevant to them as well. Um, so I'd love for, for people to come and look at what you've produced, um, and watch your, thank watch you. Your yeah. So, yeah. I really, really appreciate yeah. that Luke. Yeah. Um, it's funny, you know, when I heard about only seven seconds, uh, when our friend Megan told me about, yeah. you know, your, your, company or nonprofit or whatever your organization and your mission and what you were doing, I was just like, wow, that's really, really impactful. And it's so important because I think about how lonely I felt in my addiction and in my time leading up to my incarceration and in my incarceration. And I think yeah. about how lonely all the men in prison that I did time with feel. Yeah. Right. And I think about the lack of connection. And it's just like, it is, it's an epidemic, you know, yeah. everybody feels so isolated and alone there, yeah. you know? So I feel like there's so much overlap in our missions and, and, yeah. what, and what we're trying to do. So, yeah. you know, on our side, like shifting the viewpoint on, on humans that, you know, have a criminal record, uh, you know, it's, it's actually a third of the American population has some type of criminal record, mm -hmm. right? You know, so it affects a huge, yep. huge portion of, of our population and how much of that is, um, influenced by trauma, right. Yeah. And influenced by lack of connection and, yeah. and loneliness, you yeah. know, it's, they, I, I feel like there's, they they go hand in hand. Yeah. 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 Definitely. So. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I'll never forget the phrase, um, that you said, we sat down and I just started talking to you and I was trying to kind of flesh out like, um, like, does he kind of understand what we're trying to get out with loneliness? And we were still trying to figure out as an organization, like what kind of stories we were trying to tell. And you said, and correct me if I'm wrong on how you said this, but you said incarceration is crowded loneliness. Mm -hmm. And yeah. right. And like, mm -hmm. I got, I like had goosebumps at the time when you said that. And it was just, I like that phrase and that imagery, um, was just 
it, it was so profound. I felt like yeah, yeah. Um, it it is so. it's it is one hundred percent crowded loneliness because yeah. you're never alone. Yeah, because there's always somebody around. Yeah. Unless right? you're thrown in the shoe. Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, technically, you are surrounded by cameras and people. Yeah, you know what I mean, so, yeah. right? And there's a, there's a guard. Yeah. There's a guard there. There's yeah. always a guard there, right? So yeah. you're never never alone, but yeah. you're always alone. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh. <sighs> it's a crazy experience, you know? Um, I can say that it was the best thing that happened to me that could have happened to me. It saved my life, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I go back and forth. Like I do feel that I am an abolitionist, but I just don't think we're there yet, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, and I, I think there's, there's ways we, there's so many ways that the system is messed up and that we need to change. We need, we need total revolution. I don't like to use the term reform. I actually was chatting with a friend of mine, uh, my friend, Matt, who was actually one of the original, um, founders of, um, March for our lives. Okay. Right. So he actually is from Parkland and um, his brother was actually in the Parkland school shooting. Um, and he's been so inspiring to me on, on sort of, uh, you know, grassroots organizing and, and just, you know, working to, to change these systems, mm. you know, that are in place. And uh, he gave me this quote. I can't remember exactly. It's from George Jackson. It, it basically equates reform to uh, fascism, right, where it's like you're still just upholding all of these systems mm. uh, that are just producing the same result. So, like, really it should be about revolution, right? Interesting. Like completely creating new systems that are more holistic, that are more beneficial, that are more trauma-impacted, that are more, you know, beneficial to society as a whole. Yeah. So I feel like there needs – it's not criminal justice reform. It's criminal justice revolution, hmm. right? Um, and that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. I, you know, there needs to be a complete revolution on how we view incarceration and how we view uh, – humans that are impacted by the system, humans that are impacted by crime, by trauma, by poverty, because it all feeds into this, yeah. right? Like yeah. every single person that is incarcerated has been affected by trauma. Yeah. It's just, it's, that's just the way it is. Yeah. It's every study, everybody will tell you. It, it, it uh, substantiates that 100%. Mm. So. Yeah. Wow. Well, I want to kind of wrap up with this. What if there's someone out there that's listening to this that is um, maybe they got access to this in a prison and had to pay a couple dollars to hear it or something, <laughs> yeah. um, or they're, there's, they're, they have a family member who might be incarcerated right now, um, or they are simply coming out of incarceration, or they might even be heading down a path of, of where incarceration's in their future if they continue in the path that they're on. like. I know that's a wide range of different types of people, mm-hmm. um, but like what types of encouragement, advice, um, or what would you want to say um, to someone listening that might be impacted by your story? I feel like in a few of those instances that you just mentioned, like there's a lot of desperation. There's mm-hmm. a lot of hopelessness involved in those situations or in that stage in life, right? Yeah. Especially with somebody that is incarcerated um, or is just coming out, right? Yeah. And I want to tell them, I want to tell you, don't give up. There's always hope. There's always hope. There's always another way you can do this. You can overcome what you've been through and you can make a better life for yourself. Mm. You can do amazing things. This is not, 
this is not going to define you. This does not have to define you unless you let it define you. Mm-hmm. I was just having a conversation with my friend Alyssa, um, and she got out recently last year after doing 15 years, and she got out on clemency, so she actually didn't think she was going to be getting out for another, like, I think 10 years or something. Wow. Um, and we were just talking, and she was like, you know, I never um, I never imagined my life, you know, could be like this, and I see what you're doing. Like, I never, like, I just, she was like, how do you, how do, you do it? Like, how do you how do you just, you know, go for it? And I'm like, I do not let this brand of a felon or a criminal or anything define who I am, right? Because I am not that person anymore. I have transcended that. And now I am the best version of myself. And anybody can do that. Literally anybody. It's not some secret. It's not reserved for a certain portion of the population. Anybody at any point in their life can make a different choice. Mm-hmm and then make another choice and another choice to make their lives better. Yeah. And you can literally pull yourself out of any situation, no matter how dark or no matter how disconnected or lonely you are. Mm. I love that. It goes back to what we were saying. It's a series it's of It's a series one, of choices. Exactly. One, That's one what good I, choice after another. Exactly. Yeah. You you made a continuous you made a set of continuous poor or bad choices. You can flip that and make a set of continuous positive choices, and that can take you to a completely different place in your life, a place that's better than you could have ever imagined. Wow, I, I love that. And I wanna kind of wrap up with that, but the last thing I'll ask you is um, relationships. They've they've had a huge impact on your life. I mean, you've called out five or six people's names throughout the podcast. <laughs> I'm like, I just talked to this friend, and I talked to this friend, and you talked about the importance of family um, and friends showing up for you while you were in prison, and um, the impact that that had on your mental health and your, your whole health, um, while you were there. And, um, I, I want to ask the question again of just like how it, uh, what would your encouragement be to people about just like relationship connection? Um, it, like in a very general sense, like what does that mean to you and how, what is your advice to people about living in connection and relationship? I mean, relationships are probably the most important thing in my life. Uh, I would not be where I am without the connections, the relationships, the people that I have in my life that have supported me, that never gave up on me, the new relationships that I've developed since getting out, right, that see me in this, like, version 2.0 of my life, Mm -hmm. right? And then I, I tell them my story and where I've come from and who I am, and they're, I mean, they just, they cannot they can't even visualize like that. That's, <laughs> that's where I came from. Right. But yeah. like knowing, knowing that I have friends and family and just people that will never give up on me, that love me, that I can turn to, that I can reach out to in times of struggle or, or distress. Cause they, it happens. It, 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 you know, I have a great, beautiful life that I'm very grateful for, but I like life is a series of ups and downs. It mm-hmm. always is. It's never going to be perfect. Like that just doesn't exist yep. in our reality. Like life is never perfect. You, yep. it's always something coming up here and there. So in order to continue to succeed and, and be grateful and have gratitude, it's like, it's the relationships and the connections that I have are the, are the foundation for yep. that. Right. Like I just did a, a trip, a vacation with some really good girlfriends of mine. Like there are five of us we vacation together and we live in different parts of the country and we met in this like emotional intelligence leadership training and we're on a group thread, a group text that we, we text every day. And like, they're, I, you know, just getting to do life with them. And we, it, it's, 
it's just a beautiful thing. Like we've formed these bonds and, and we're always there for each other. And I'm very lucky. I have a lot of those friendships and relationships in my life. And I don't know where I would be, uh, without that, to have people to be raw and real and vulnerable with, to just know all of your deepest, darkest secrets, I guess you could say, or, you know, skeletons in your closet or whatever, like, you know, everybody has stuff from their past. Everybody has things that they might have shame around or guilt or this and that, but to be able to just be your authentic self with people and to just lay it all out on the table and have people that accept you and love you. That's the greatest thing in this life. I feel Mm -hmm. that's what I'm most lucky to have because I have true, amazing, beautiful connections and I can always be myself. And I know as long as I have that, I will always be successful Mm. no matter what because everything else is secondary yeah that's amazing well Vic thank you for spending the time with me today I absolutely love this Um, just super grateful for your friendship and um, you being able to share your story and willing to share your story and um, just knowing that um, there will be people that listen to this that are impacted and influenced Um, it, it it makes a profound difference in people's lives Um, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Luke. This is, it's always an honor and a pleasure to work with you guys at only seven seconds. So, um, I wholeheartedly believe in what you're doing and your mission. And it's, I've been looking forward to this, you know, for a week. So I, I can't wait to see, you know, what you guys do with the podcast and can't wait to, you know, continually, you know, work with you and, uh, see, see how your organization and your mission just reaches more and more people. I think it's beautiful. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm super, super grateful. So thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you, Vic. All right. We'll see you around. Thank you guys. Thank you for listening to the I Know Lonely podcast. I hope that you were inspired by Vic's story to make a connection with someone in your life. If your story is similar to Vic's in any way, I hope you feel a little less alone. Check out the show notes for access to resources and Vic's feature video. To help us continue sharing stories like Vic's, please consider being a monthly supporter of Only 7 Seconds. Learn more about our work at www.only7seconds.com. And as always, find us on social media at Only 7 Seconds.